This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth episode. I have my lovely wife, Laurel, sitting here, and she has our sleeping son, Arthur, with him, who today, as we record, is eight weeks old. Woohoo! Wow, and that's been a fast eight weeks, hasn't it? It's also been the longest eight weeks of my life. That's true. Yeah, we haven't. I have not slept. We haven't had a full night's sleep. In particular, Laurel has not had a full night's sleep in eight weeks. And here we are. We took last week off. We did have a Wheel of Ka, where Steve and I concluded our conversation on the monstrous tome of it, monstrous in length and monstrous in monsters. That was a ton of fun. Got a lot of positive feedback about it. Thank you to everyone who commented. And here we are with our regular Midnight Myth episode. I've got a feeling we're probably looking at every other week at this point. Yeah, it's been a little irregular. We're getting used to our completely new life. So we thank you for bearing with us and being patient with our irregular schedule. But every other week is feeling somewhat sustainable for us. So continue to bear with us as we figure it out. Yeah, and we haven't done any, you know, extras or bonuses really all that much because we can really only do so much. Um, and thank you fans for just, you know, bearing with us. All that being said, the reason I'm excited is we are doing a movie that is long, long overdue for the midnight myth. Back when we first started the podcast, we had done a three parter where we talked about three individual movies that all came out in 1999 and we discussed how they were thematically linked, and those three movies were Fight Club, American Beauty, and The Matrix. And that was part of a general sort of Hollywood critique of what we called Pax Americana. And we linked these three movies because all three of them kind of said, this amazing, beautiful American world of the 90s that there is something sort of bubbling under the surface, something not quite right with it. 
But we thought it was high time that we went back in particular to The Matrix. We really wanted to do a full episode on it. We didn't feel like we had had a satisfactory conversation about The Matrix. So here it is. We are going to follow the white rabbit. We are going to remind ourselves that there is no spoon. In fact, it is ourselves that bends as we roll up our sleeves and get to work on the Wachowski sisters singular monumental achievement, probably the greatest movie they will ever make. And it was, I think their second or third movie they ever did. Yeah. Their second feature. Imagine your second movie is one of the greatest movies ever made. Yeah. And one of the most influential with one of the most like sincere, obvious legacies. Like everyone knows the matrix and everyone Uh, can pick out references to the Matrix in other media. It is just, like you said, a singular achievement. It is truly one of the great movies of the 90s, and I would argue one of the great movies of all time. However, we did fight whether or not The Matrix was a perfect movie. We sure did. And And I remember I argued very fiercely that it was, and you argued that the style was just too dated to allow it to be a perfect movie. I mean, that is, we'll we'll, we'll get to that. We'll we'll get to whether it holds up or not. We'll have a whole Midnight Myth conversation. I'm really excited for this one. We got a lot of good things planned. But before we get too deep into it... Before we take the red pill and go down the rabbit hole... Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, so my thing is just we would love to hear from you. We're over on social media at The Midnight Myth on Twitter. We're on Facebook and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And we're on the World Wide Web uh, at MidnightMyth.com. Enter the matrix with us, a world of ones and zeros. We're on the internet. Uh, Yeah, our website has blogs, extra content, links to our Patreon and our merch store if you were interested in supporting us financially. Financially, but if you don't have the cash to spare and you want to help us out, the best thing you can do for the podcast costs you no money at all. Just five minutes of your time. Uh, leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps us get out there, especially if you leave us five stars and talk about how much you love us. It helps other people find the podcast. Yeah. And if you love us, tell a friend. And if you hate us, tell an enemy. Yeah, there you go. On with the show. Great job doing your thing as always. Shall we begin with our briefest of brief recaps? Let's do it. Go ahead. The Matrix is a movie featuring a software developer named Mr. Thomas Anderson, who is struggling with apathy in his humdrum normal life. And he goes by the hacker alias Neo, in which he sells computer programs that are potentially illegal. He wakes up one day sleeping at his computer with the computer literally commanding him to wake up and telling him to follow the white rabbit. Then he sees a woman with a white rabbit tattoo and he accompanies the woman and her friends to a club where he meets the mysterious Trinity, who also is a famous hacker. And there Trinity tells him that a question is driving him. And the question is, what is the Matrix? Neo ends up getting picked up by these sinister agents in which they implant a bug and Neo wakes up in his apartment thinking it was just a dream when Morpheus calls him the man that these sinister agents are pursuing. There, Neo hops into a car with Trinity and the others in which they extract the bug and they bring Neo to meet Morpheus. And Morpheus gives him a choice, a red pill that he can take to learn what the Matrix is or a blue pill, he can go to sleep and believe what he wants to believe. Neo is told and warned by Morpheus that all Morpheus is offering him is the truth. 
When Neo takes the red pill, he finds out that he has been trapped in a computer simulation called The Matrix. In fact, it is not the year 1999. No one really knows what year it is. And the future is a dystopian world in which humanity and artificial intelligence went to war and the humans lost. They torched the sky in order to stop the machines from having solar power. So now the entire planet is a dark wasteland. And what the machines did so they could power themselves is they started connecting human beings into a computer simulation so they could use human body heat to power themselves. And Neo's entire life has been in the Matrix, a lie. We also learned that there is a prophecy that someone will be reborn out of the Matrix and will be the one. They will be able to enter the Matrix and command it at will, and this will shut the Matrix down, awaking all of the humans, ending the war between the humans and the machines, meaning that the machines will have no more of a power source. And in fact, Morpheus believes Neo is this one. Neo gets sent to an oracle, and the oracle tells him that he is in fact not the one. He has the gift, but he's waiting for his next life. But Neo will choose his life or Morpheus's. We find out that one of Morpheus's crewmates, a gentleman by the name of Cypher, is actually a mole for the machines because he wants to get plugged back into the Matrix because life outside of the Matrix is so unbearable. And Morpheus sacrifices himself so Neo can escape and gets captured by the, um, the agents. The agents are sentient programs who are pretty much the guard keepers. They're like gods in this world. They can enter in and out of people's bodies. They cannot be killed. They can move with super speed, etc., Neo decides that he and Trinity are going to break Morpheus out of the clutches of these evil agents, and they have one of the best action scenes in all cinema when they storm the agent's uh, building, break Morpheus out. Neo ends up deciding he is going to fight the agent. The agent actually kills him, and Neo is reborn as the one. He commands the Matrix, he defeats the agents, and the movie ends with Neo in a phone saying that he is going to show these people a world without control. He hangs up to the phone, cue the Rage Against the Machines song, Wake Up from Rage Against the Machines' first album, and the movie ends. And Neo flies into the sky, and then it says, like, what does it say on the screen? Uh, System failure. System failure, yeah, thank you. We see the Matrix green code, and it says system failure. Yeah. And the movie ends. Now, there have been two subsequent Matrix movies after this one. We're not going to talk about those. We're just going to focus on the first one. And we're going to do that for a few reasons. One, the sequels aren't as good as the first. Let's be honest. I also haven't seen them. Oh, you should definitely see them. I mean, they're yeah. fun. They're just, they're nowhere near as good as the first movie. Yeah, but, I never, never took the plunge. But they are definitely fun. Um, they're not train wrecks, but they're certainly nowhere near as successful as the first movie. Actually, they are pretty awful at some points. There are some moments that are really bad. But that being said, we're going to focus just on the first Matrix. It came out in 1999. We've already had a vigorous debate whether or not it's a perfect movie. Laurel says it is. I say it's close, but doesn't quite hit the mark of perfection. I think I know the answer to this. We have just recently rewatched it. Does this movie hold up? Yes, and I'll tell you one of the reasons that it holds up 
uh, so securely and why I'm so secure in answering it that way is that uh, as influential and as amazing and mind-blowing as it was in the time that it came out in 1999, today in 2021, it has even greater resonance. It feels even richer and more powerful uh, for lots of reasons because the world has changed along with it. The world has changed in a way that uh, comes closer to the matrix in some ways and is further away from the matrix in other ways, but also because we have seen the the transformation of the creators, of the artists behind the series, the Wachowskis. We saw them come out as trans women, Lana and Lily, and watching The Matrix in 2021 is an incredibly moving and powerful experience knowing what the artists have been through and uh, looking at the themes of living your authentic self, living uh, you know, as yourself and waking up and choosing your own name, uh, choosing who you want to be and choosing freedom. So I think as amazing as it was in 1999, it holds up extraordinarily well and with even more power in 2021. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. Let me ask you a follow-up question because one of the central themes and one of the central conflicts of the main character, Neo, is the conflict of destiny versus free will. In it, we are told there is an oracle, a callback to ancient Greece, and that this oracle is a prophet, and that Neo does not believe in prophecy, Neo does not believe in fate, he does not believe the, in the idea that something else is in control of his life, versus Morpheus, who is a devout believer in the prophecy. And you mentioned that one of the themes, especially filtered through the Wachowskis and them coming out as trans, is the ability to choose to be your authentic self. My question for you is, in the movie The Matrix, does it come down definitively that there is free will or that everyone is subject to the whims of fate, that there is a system of control? And where do you think the movie ultimately lies? Because Neo eventually comes to be the one. The prophecy turns out to be true. The uh, Oracle says that Neo will make a choice his life or Morpheus's. That comes to be true. Is Neo actually free? And that's a great question. And the movie asks us that question directly when the Oracle says, you know, if I hadn't said something about the vase, when he knocks over the vase, would you still have broken it? The movie is actively asking us, uh, you know, if we're given prophecy, is it uh, still within our choice to determine what we're going to do with our future. And so I think the movie is uh, is questioning that rather than giving us a very stern, like, this is exactly what it is. I think it strikes a really interesting balance between uh, prophecy, uh, destiny, uh, things being foretold and people living within set paths and, you know, choosing your future. Because uh, we also get quotes like, the Matrix can't tell you who you are. And above the door in the Oracle's kitchen, it says, know thyself in Latin. Uh, there is a strong emphasis on the fact that Neo can't be told that he's the one. He can't be made the one by somebody else. He has to make himself the one. So even if there is a prophecy saying it's going to be him, he has to choose Morpheus. He has to choose to sacrifice himself in order to become the uh, the the object of the prophecy. So I think it's a balance. That's that's my answer there. Yeah, I think it's a lot in the way that prophecy works in ancient Greek myths. Yeah. 
in the way that, so consider the myth of Oedipus and written down by Sophocles in which Oedipus is born with a prophecy that he will kill his father and he will marry his mother. And in an attempt to avoid this prophecy ends up doing everything to ensure that the prophecy actually happens, that there is a overarching fate. There is an overarching control in the matrix and that within that control, within that system of control, individuals can make choices um, on their own. So I do think you're right. It is a little bit of both. It is a little bit of fate and magic and destiny coupled with choice. The very last words of the Matrix are Neo when he says, I'm going to show these people something you don't want them to see, a world without rules. And what we're seeing, I think, ultimately, is that the prophecies, the control, is the matrix. Fate works within the matrix. Neo's power exists within the matrix. Yet outside of the matrix, in the real world, people are actually free. But within the matrix, they are not. Because the matrix is a synthetic reality, because it is a system of control, its algorithm is gameable and it is understandable. I read the Oracle as someone that can see so many of the variables of the matrix that she can predict where the code is going to go before it gets there. Yeah, it's sort of a variation on the deterministic universe, uh, on Newton, right? So if if the universe is deterministic, if it all uh, works according to Newton's laws of motion and the laws of thermodynamics, then you could write a computer code to predict everything that happens in the future. There's no computer big enough to do that, but theoretically it's possible. And that's, I think, what you're saying with the matrix, that you could game that out all the way and see every single variable and every possibility unless you introduce the option of free will that cannot be predicted, that cannot be uh, figured out by a computer. Yeah, and it's very much like the fates, too, in a mythological context, who have a huge hand. The fates of ancient Greece and ancient Roman mythology, also I would say this is true in ancient Near Eastern and in ancient Norse, where that there's this idea that there are these sort of webs being spun which mortal lives have to kind of walk on. However, there are free variables within them. It is not 100% governed by fate, but it is still a a factor guiding us. And at the end of the day, it does come down to what we choose to do with the circumstances that fate has put in front of us. In other words, we're not living in a world of just ones and zeros. We're not living in a world that is purely binary. I may be reading more into this than was actually intended at the time, but looking at that through the lens of Lana and Lily Wachowski's transness, I think is really important uh, in the current moment as you rewatch The Matrix and thinking about living beyond the binary, thinking about living beyond the control that is imposed on you uh, is super important to Neo's story and to the story of everyone in The Matrix. Yeah, absolutely. So we agree, it holds up. It holds up. It holds up. And there are some huge themes in The Matrix and one could be, we could talk about this all day. So we are going to dissect a few things. Um, just other things before we actually move on, does it hold up? I mean, obviously this movie was incredibly innovative technically. Yeah. It pushed the boundaries of what could be done with the technology of the time. 
and it has some of the most iconic shots, most iconic fight choreography. It really did, did break the matrix, <laughs> for lack of a better term, of what people thought could be done in film. And that is really awesome. And we all benefit from the innovations, us movie fans benefit from the innovations that the Wachowski sisters did and how they and their team pushed the boundaries of what was possible in the art of film. And I just wanted to say that before we move on. Absolutely. It has to be said. All right. So let's move on. Where would you like to go in terms of deeper analysis? Well, I think one of the most important interpretations of the film and one that we should spend a little time with is the platonic interpretation of the matrix. So talking about Plato and Socrates, uh, a lot has been made of the matrix as uh, a manifestation of the of Plato's allegory of the cave, which uh, is one of the Socratic dialogues that Plato writes out. And it features uh, a supposition that we have this cave in which there are prisoners chained to the wall facing the back wall of the cave. That's all they can see is the back wall of the cave. And there are people behind them who are projecting a fire and sort of puppets that they are projecting across the wall. So everything that the prisoners can see are the shadows of those puppets on the wall rather than real reality. But to those prisoners, that's real reality. The shadows, that's all they know, and so that is what is real. Meanwhile, there is an entire thriving world outside the cave with a sun, with people, with three-dimensional forms, and with higher truths even than that. Now, in the allegory of the cave, Socrates uh, supposes that maybe one of these prisoners can escape and go outside and would be overcome by the dimensionality of what is outside the cave. It's more than just shadows on a wall. And this person becomes the philosopher. This person becomes the one who would try to liberate those who are living with just the shadows on the cave. But Socrates also supposes that when he goes back, those who are trapped inside the cave are comfortable. They don't want to know that there's more outside, and they think the person coming in and telling them about three-dimensional reality, telling them about the sun, telling them about light and life, is mad. And so they would, if they could, tear him apart and destroy him. It's a pretty amazing allegory when you think about it, especially with uh, regard to the Matrix, because it suggests that maybe we, in our reality, which we perceive as fully real, authentic, tangible, uh, and understandable and knowable, uh, are not seeing the true uh, essence of things. And it, uh, it links up with Plato's allegory or Plato's theory of forms in several ways as well, where he suggests that there is a higher truth and a higher essence behind every object and every phenomenon, that uh, the things that we interact with in the phenomenal world are not, in fact, the true essence of those things. There's something higher. Uh, so we could be the prisoners in the cave. We just don't know it, and we need the philosophers to try and wrench us out of our chains. I love that you're the one bringing up Plato. That's I, love, usually, I love Plato. I know that you usually are me. <laughs> usually the philosophy guy, but but Plato is very important to me. And you know, one of the other aspects of this film is that it has a lot of Christian imagery, which I know we'll talk about uh, a little bit later on. But uh, Plato and the Neoplatonists, in particular, are a huge foundation in the philosophy of Christianity as well. It, it is the philosophical yeah. foundation. All of the original. Uh, major 
theologians of the ancient Roman world who shaped the Christian church all converted from paganism and were Neoplatonists. And in Neoplatonism and in Christianity, they found a home where they could uh, express their ideas and build a framework. So in many ways, Christianity and Platonism have a intimate link and are very much tied together as they are in this movie. I'd like to point out a few things. One, you yeah. you talked about Neoplatonists as a term that formed Christianity. What's our protagonist's... I'm sorry. Our pro, Yes, yeah. our protagonist's name. It's Neo. It's Neo. Which has a lot of symbolism. Like, it's an anagram of one. It means new, and it represents this kind of rebirth of this character. But I can't help but point out that it has this connection to the Neoplatonists and Plato. Uh, go ahead. And, you know, other things that we see, Morpheus warns Neo when he is training and learning how to navigate and unlock his power within the Matrix. There's the training session with the woman with the red dress. And what Morpheus warns him is ultimately the people are not ready to be woken up. They will fight for this system. They will allow these agents to pass through their their computer program. And if you are not unplugged, you have to consider every single one of these, even though their job is to wake them up and they're fighting for their freedom. Every single person within this synthetic prison of a reality is also their enemy, and they do fight to you know keep the matrix. Similar to what Socrates theorized about when the philosopher returns to the cave and says, "Listen, you got to check out this thing called wind and grass, and the, there's a there's these." things in the sky called stars and a moon. And they're like, you're mad. We're going to sit here and we're going to stay in our shadows. And quite tragically, what does Athens do to Socrates? They destroy him. They execute they, yeah. him. They'll put they him make on him drink hemlock. They put him on trial and they sentence him to death for impiety and corrupting youth, corrupting the youth and force him to drink hemlock and die the first and arguably greatest of the Greek philosophers was murdered simply because he poked too many holes in the ideas and theories of the Athenian society, so much so that they had to murder him to get him out of society. If that is not the allegory of the the cave made manifest, I don't know what is. Literally, Socrates predicts his own death by the philosopher trying to shake people out of their apathy, trying to challenge their conventions, ends up being purged from society and ultimately gets killed by the society, to which Socrates loved. You know, in the death of Socrates, this is just a fun little tangent, a bunch of his students try to break him out, and they come to Socrates and say, all right, we're here, we're going to get you out, we're not going to let you know, this society kill you. And Socrates says, I swore an oath to live by the laws of this land. I've been sentenced to death. I will die. And in it, there's a lot of things that you can extrapolate. One is the, there's no rational reason to fear death is one of the main lessons. Death is just something unknown. Why would you fear it? You've never been through it. You have no idea what it's like, as well as it is a, um, a opportunity for Socrates to show his virtue that if you commit yourself to something, even if that thing comes to destroy you, you should still stay committed to it and is a tragedy that lines up beat by beat for the allegory of the cave. 
you know, there's a lot of people that discuss the Matrix as a representation of Plato's allegory of the cave. And I do think it's one of the best ways to analyze the Matrix, but you do need to go one step further. And we have to walk away from the Matrix trying to uncouple ourselves from the shadows on the wall. And you mentioned that in many ways, the Matrix is more relevant now than ever. And you cited as the Wachowskis and their trans experience. And I agree with that. But I would also argue that we are living in a time of epistemic crisis. We are living in the crisis of how we know. And we are living in a time where what we think we know is largely going unchallenged. We have built digital matrices. We have created shadows on the wall and we are all content watching them. And when someone comes into our own shadows and tries to tell us there might be something outside, our collective tendency as Americans, as digital matrix selves, is to fight to protect our reality. And we are living through this crisis of the cave. We didn't need the machines to enslave us. We plugged ourselves into the matrix voluntarily. And where I walk away from the matrix is to ask myself, in what ways do I have my confirmation biases? In what ways am I stuck in my own routines and systems of control that I think I am seeing the world as it is, but what I'm really seeing is the shadow on the wall? Well, and if we look back at the movie, it's easier to live in the Matrix. It's much easier to live in the Matrix. There is juicy steak in the Matrix, and you have to eat nasty slop in the real world. And you have to work really hard, and it's ugly, and it's dirty, and it's unpleasant, and there is no joy outside of the Matrix. There is just work and fight and resistance. And you look at Cypher, who is ready to protect his participation in the matrix, who is ready to reject the real because it is too hard. And I can relate to that. Like it would be easier to live in the matrix than to work really hard to resist. And so if I were in his situation, I might protect my participation in the system of control. I just need to acknowledge that about myself. That's kind of my reality right now. And Cypher is very much the prisoner within the cave who has been uh, tried to be enlightened and tried to be freed, but uh, decides to destroy those who wrenched him out of the matrix in the first place and plug himself back in, chain himself back to the wall. When he gets out of the cave and sees the sun, the metaphoric sun in the allegory, all he is is blinded and all he is is pain. And the he is not ready to be enlightened. And he is not ready to face the world as it is. And hence, he retreats back into the cave. Absolutely. And many of us, and in a certain respect, we can understand and empathize with that. The, the, the colloquialism, ignorance of is bliss, exists for a reason. The philosophers hate that because the philosophers will argue, as Socrates argued, the only way to live a good life is to interrogate and use philosophy, is to ask the big questions, is to try to figure out the exact way to live, is to try to understand why we are here and to live a really true, not, not pleasurable life, but a good life. And a true life, an authentic life. That the only way to truly be happy is to embrace 
the life outside of the cave, but that takes tremendous amount of work. Most don't want to do that. And I would also argue in our social media, our matrix selves, our digital selves, we are very much in the matrix by choice. We are very much curated by machines that are telling us, that are painting the shadows on the wall. And the matrix reminds us that we must ask how we know what we know. Why, where does this knowledge come from? How do we know what we're being told is the truth or not? And we have to challenge that very idea if we're going to have some sort of semblance of reality because it's very easy right now to be in the matrix. It's very easy to surround yourself with people who are like you, who agree with you, who tell you that you're smart and that you're interesting and that you're cool. And the reality is you may be none of those things, right? you know, like, and you could be the complete opposite of those things. In fact, you could become a monster thinking that you are smart and cool and awesome and awake and awake. I mean, one of the words we use to describe ourselves today is woke. And that's especially uh, regarding our online presence. Your online presence has to be woke uh, in a particular way. And what the matrix tells us is we're actually all asleep. Yeah. And I think that is the bigger question. We are all asleep. How do we actually wake up? I think it's an especially important conversation to have in a pandemic when our lives are increasingly virtual uh, and I'm happy that we have these tools to continue connecting with human beings, but uh, we are being increasingly divorced from sensory experience because we can't leave our homes, because we can't interact with people on a sensory level. Uh, so it's an important conversation to keep having, to keep reminding ourselves to wake up and leave the cave once in a while. I got to say, philosophy is just awesome. And yeah. <laughs> I am so happy that you you kicked off with Plato. I could talk Plato all day. I've said it before. We could just be a Plato podcast. We could just do like Plato in the Harry Potter series or Plato in 1990s cinema for years. There's so much to learn from Plato. Plato is my favorite philosophy philosopher that I probably agree the least amount. Oh yeah. There's very little, um, this is a bit of a side tangent, but there's very little in Plato's philosophy that I literally agree with. But the idea of Socrates and what Socrates' life has meant and the idea of the gadfly and the ability to challenge people's preconceived notions of the self, of their place in the world, of the polis. You know, the allegory of the cave comes from the Republic. And it starts with Socrates just with a bunch of well-to-do affluent Athenian males. And he just asks them a question, what is justice? And it starts with asking people to explain what justice is, challenging the very notion that Athens was itself just. What, as always happens in a Socratic dialogue, is he comes to find out nobody can actually describe what justice is. Hence, he builds the republic. Hence, he builds the idea of a just society because everybody is going around participating in a society, calling it just, and saying that what the society does is justice, and no one can actually define what justice means. Now, the actual construct of the Republic, what Plato builds as a society, I personally don't think is just. You know, there's, uh, for example, there's um, little freedom. It's a highly 
a stratified class society. There is no democracy. There is sexism. Women are not enfranchised. There's slavery in this republic. So I don't believe that Plato builds the just society in the republic at all. I mean, Plato argues that art should be highly regulated by the philosopher king. Right. That you can't allow artists just to make what they want because they will make something destructive to the state. The very thing that the movie The Matrix is, is a, is a piece of artwork trying to deconstruct the state and saying that it's bad. It wouldn't exist in the Republic. But the allegory of the cave and the idea that people can say they know something is true and they know that they are living in a just society when they can't even define the word justice resonates so deep with me in the world that we currently live. Hey, we're free. We have a democracy and it's just. Okay, how do you define freedom? How do you define democracy? How do you find justice in this society? Is it? And the matrix is about deconstructing those very ideas. Oh, we are living at the height of American civilization. America, 1999, the greatest time to be alive. Was it? Right, yeah. For some people, it was. Uh, but but as we discussed the last time we talked about 1999 movies, there was more going on below the surface than we like to admit. Are we all just cogs in the neoliberal machine churning out product for our masters and overlords without actually being able to see reality as it is? Probably. Big, big questions. Yeah. Um, would you like to pivot a little? Yeah, let's move on. I'd like to talk about something because I'm the, also the history guy here. And I want to point out some of the symbolic references in the movie. And I want to discuss where they come from and why I think they're used. In particular, I want to talk about the ship, the Nebuchadnezzar. They have a floating ship and it's called the Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this movie is chock full of biblical references. Uh, one Neo being the one. He is called Jesus like three yeah, times. And his name is Thomas, which is like St. Thomas Aquinas Thomas, yeah. and Donnie Thomas. There's a lot of Thomases. Morpheus is the name of a Greek deity. The Greek deity of, of dreams is associated with creating dreams. Um, Neo is in love with Trinity, which is a reference to the Holy Trinity, the father, the son, and the Holy spirit, a central doctrine of Christianity and the book Nebuchadnezzar. I'm sorry, the name Nebuchadnezzar of the ship comes from the Bible. But Nebuchadnezzar, I want to ask a few questions. Who was Nebuchadnezzar? What did Nebuchadnezzar do? Why is Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible? And why did they pick, of all things in the Bible, Nebuchadnezzar for the name of the ship? And so this is going to be fun. Nebuchadnezzar was a legitimate king of the ancient Near East. The name Nebuchadnezzar is its Greek form. It actually is a Babylonian king, technically a Neo-Chaladian. There was an empire in the ancient Near East called the Assyrian Empire. The descendants are still on the planet today in modern-day Syria. It's where that word comes from. And the Assyrian Empire got threatened by a group of people called the Neo-Chaladians. They are also sometimes called the Neo-Babylonians. And they fought a war of resistance and ultimately toppled the Assyrian Empire. The second king of the Neo-Chaladian dynasty is Nebuchadnezzar. His father was the one that led the charge to dismantle the um, Babylonian, I'm sorry, the Assyrian Empire and reoriented the center of the Near East away from the Assyrians and Tel Aviv 
and back to Babylon. Babylon being one of the ancient cities of prominence and importance. And Nebuchadnezzar takes over with Babylon now the capital of a new Babylonian empire. And what does he do? He builds Babylon. He monumentalizes it. He carves something called the gates, the Ishtar gates. Presumably he builds the hanging gardens of Babylon. However, which I did not know until researching for this podcast, it is suggested that the hanging gardens of Babylon didn't exist and are just a myth because nobody really knows. But presumably if there were the hanging gardens of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar is credited with having built them, but they may not have ever actually existed. Nebuchadnezzar also folds into the Babylonian empire a people in a place called Judea that has a people called the Israelites, whose capital is Jerusalem. Now, when he first goes and conquers, in the ancient world, there are generally two different types of imperial conquests. One is to conquer, and the other is punitive. And they're very different. If I go to a place that I want to conquer, that I want to rule, I, as the conqueror, I am not incentivized to level this place to the ground. I don't want to burn the cities. I don't want to salt the fields. I don't want to slaughter all the men and enslave the women and children because I want this place to be part of my imperial network. I want it to pay me taxes. I want it to supply me with food. I want to trade with their merchants, etc. So Judea gets conquered, and in it, Nebuchadnezzar appoints a king. And the king was, I believe, his brother-in-law, but internet, you can fact-check me because I didn't write that down, but is a, 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 someone that he is very much trust and says, here, you go to Jerusalem, you rule Judea in my name, and etc. This king ends up revol- revolting, decides that he wants to declare himself a king of the Israelites and wants it to be a free and independent kingdom from Babylon. Now comes the punitive war. This is, okay, you're part of my empire, and now you're done messed up. So now I have to send a signal to anyone else who may want to rebel against me. I am going to now burn your cities. I'm going to salt your fields. I'm going to take hostages. I need to punish you because if I don't, as a ruler, other people will try to break away and my empire then dissolves. This is standard imperial administration that you see both in the ancient Near East, ancient Greece, and in ancient Rome. Two different types of conquest, two different types of imperial warfare, wars for conquest, wars for punitive. If you're unable to do the punitive expedition, you're going to lose your empire and you're going to lose it very quickly. So you've got to be incredibly harsh. Now, I'm not saying I agree with these, but that is, that's the ropes. That's how it worked back in the day. So Judea revolts, and it actually revolts a few times. Eventually, Nebuchadnezzar goes and he burns the Temple of Solomon, and he takes 10,000 Israelites captive and enters into the era of Babylonian captivity in Jewish history. He also disperses anyone that's alive, and he kicks all of the ancient Israelites out of Jerusalem. This is where Nebuchadnezzar becomes a figure in the Bible. And as you can imagine, the ancient Israelites are not a fan of him. Why? He destroyed their temple and he displaced them and he slaughtered and enslaved many of them. So Nebuchadnezzar is painted in the Old Testament very much as a really bad dude. Enter the book of Daniel. Daniel is an ancient Israelite 
who is now enslaved and works for Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel is a educated ancient Israelite and is someone who is very holy. Here is the theological conundrum the ancient Hebrews were in. If they had had a treaty with Yahweh for the land of milk and honey, why would they lose this land? The story of Exodus is the story of Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt, and they come up with a contract with Yahweh and say, if we worship you and only you, you will lead us to the land of milk and honey. Many argue that this is the start of monotheism, but some have also pointed out this is not the start of monotheism. If you are saying we have a contract with one God to lead us, you de facto are admitting that there are other gods. Yeah, you're acknowledging that there are are some that you don't worship. You're choosing to worship one god. You say this one god is the one god that we will worship. Interesting, yeah. It is a contractual relationship with a god to singularly worship this one god, to ignore all the other gods so that you can have this country. But now here you are without the country. Maybe this whole idea was wrong. Maybe this contract with this one God was wrong. And the ancient Israelites had a problem, a theological problem, because at this point in time, they were worshiping just this one God for a long time. They had a code of ethics. They had religious traditions. They were starting to write these things down and develop religious texts. They had a a functioning priestly class whose job it was to understand, discuss, and disseminate the ideas of their contractual relationship with this one God. And what they realize and what the conversation starts to become among the Israelites is, hey, the problem isn't that we just worship this one God. The problem is we're not doing enough for this one God. We're acknowledging that there are other gods. Maybe it is one true God and all the others are false. Let us double down on our worship with this one God. Let us become more devoted. Let us really error, show the error of our ways. Let us really admit our sins. Let us purge all of these other gods and enter in Daniel. Now, Daniel is fanatically dedicated to Yahweh. Nebuchadnezzar ends up uh, having a bad dream and he wants to get it interpreted. He wants someone to tell him what this dream means. So he gets all of his astrologers, all of his philosophers, all his theologians, all of his sorcerers, and he says, I want you to interpret my dream, but I'm not going to tell you what the dream is. You need to tell me what the dream is so I know you're not BSing me. And it turns out they can't. So he orders every learned man in Babylon to be executed, whether or not they were the ones that failed him. All of the priestly class All of the philosophers, astrologers must die. Daniel realizes as a holy man that he is now marked for execution. So he prays to Yahweh and says, can you tell me the dream so that I can save my life and all of my other learned Judean lives? Yahweh answers his prayer. He goes and he interprets the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is incredibly impressed and impressed with Yahweh, but he refuses to worship just Yahweh. He refuses. He keeps all of his other gods. But he, Daniel ends up saving his life, his friends' lives, and all of the other lives that were put for execution. So then Nebuchadnezzar ends up building this golden statue, 
and he wants Daniel and his friends to fall down and worship the statue as a god, and they refuse. In fact, he wants everyone, and if anyone refuses to worship this statue, what does he do? He throws them in a furnace and burns them alive. Daniel and his friends refuse to do it, and he's like, okay, I'm going to throw you in the furnace, and you're going to burn alive. He throws them in the furnace, yet they do not burn. Yahweh protects them. And again, Nebuchadnezzar is impressed with the power of Yahweh, yet he refuses to actually worship Yahweh. Then lastly, there's a lot more to it, but jumping ahead just for time. Then lastly, he has another dream, Nebuchadnezzar, and goes to Daniel. And Daniel says, this is a dream where if you don't finally acknowledge Yahweh as the one true God and all other gods as false, you're going to go insane for seven years. And what happens? He refuses to worship Yahweh, and he goes insane for seven years, and then eventually comes out of it. Now, none of these things probably ever actually happened, but in it we can learn some amazing things. It is about creating a a tradition of monotheism, about saying, if we ancient Israelites focus and admit and just worship our one true God— We will save our lives. We will save lives of other Israelites. We will be impervious to harm. And those who deny the one true God are going to end up losing their sanity. They're going to end up um, being hubristic, and they're going to live unholy lives. Now, the rest of the ancient world at this time thinks Nebuchadnezzar is just the best. He is remembered and on other lands as one of the greatest ancient rulers of all time. But to the Israelites, he is a symbol of hubristic denial of monotheism. Now, where does this end up historically leading? The Babylonian Empire, the Neo-Chaladian Empire, is not long-lived. Eventually, a man named Cyrus, that is also the Greek version of the name, from a small and unknown place called Persia, rises up and takes over the Neo-Chaladian Empire, and he reconquers and he forms the Persian Empire. And what does Cyrus do? Cyrus says, Israelites, I'm impressed with you. You have suffered. You can have Jerusalem back. Proof point to the ancient Israelites, if as long as we stay a monotheistic religion, we will have our land of milk and honey returned to us. So what does Cyrus do? Now, Cyrus fancies himself a living God. Tradition in the ancient Near East is the king is a living God, and he demands his subjects worship him as a living God, but he recognizes that the Israelites aren't going to do that, so he wants to level taxes. You cannot worship me, but I have to tax you for that privilege. You'll have to pay me. So I need to assess your taxes. I need to know exactly what you believe. Can you please present that with me? All of the ancient Israelites get together, and what do they do? They write the Torah, the Old Testament. And we now have a monotheistic religion in the world, a set, written, monotheistic religion that denies all other gods as false gods. Nebuchadnezzar is in many ways as responsible for monotheism as any one individual potentially could be because of this. It is theoretically possible that there is a world in which Nebuchadnezzar does not go and uh, burn the temple at Jerusalem, and the ancient Israelites are monotheistic-ish, but also admit there are other gods, but they just only worship one. 
it is because of Nebuchadnezzar that it is solidified 100% monotheistic. This is to say, some of this is debatable. This is not 100%. We're dealing with the ancient world. There is more unknown than known. And there is debate even among the ancient, uh, the, the Jewish people today when monotheism started. So by no means am I saying this is etched in stone, for lack of a better term. Long story is now long. Why do they name the ship Nebuchadnezzar? Yeah. So first I want to say, wow. I mean, fascinating. These are all things that I had no idea about historically and theologically. So thank you so much for that. But I'm left with, I think, more questions about why they named the ship the Nebuchadnezzar in the first place. Are they just making kind of a glib reference? Did they just point to a page in the Bible and say, you know, this is the name that we want? Or do you have any other ideas? I have several ideas. And it's one of the things that I had forgotten. And when they were like, the ship Nebuchadnezzar. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to talk for an hour about Nebuchadnezzar. Because, <laughs> you know, a lot of people just don't know the history of, you know, the Neo-Chaladians and the rise of Persia. I mean, this is uh, this is amazing stuff to me. So, one, the Babylonian captivity is also can be understood allegorically as the people in the Matrix. What Nebuchadnezzar does is he takes 10,000 Israelites captive and he forces them to live under his rule. So Nebuchadnezzar in this way is the tyrant of the ancient Israelites in the way the machines are also the tyrant of the people in the matrix. Sure. So I think that's the first connection that I I pieced together. Secondly, more symbolically, this also created the first Jewish ancient diaspora in which the Jewish people are displaced without a home, that they have to roam the world trying to uh, keep their culture and their traditions together. This is also very much like the people of that are unplugged from the matrix. They are floating, they are traveling, they don't have a set place. There is one home that they can go back to, and what is it called? Zion. Zion, which is a word that can stand in for? Jerusalem. So it is linking the ship and the one home and the fact that they are in a both symbolic and literal human diasporia that Nebuchadnezzar links that total thing together. And then lastly, we can understand Neo as a little bit of a Daniel figure, as someone who is going to stand up to authority, as someone who's going to question the the tyranny of the machine. Though I think Neo is definitely much more literally a Christ figure. Yeah, for sure. But we can understand that these these prophets of the ancient world have a connection, and a lot of that is in standing up in defiance against a tyrannical state that is irreligious. Well, and then something about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, especially with the writing of the New Testament, is that many of the figures of the Old Testament, like Daniel, uh, end up being sort of precursors of Jesus. Jesus ends up sort of sublimating some of the aspects of those uh, those people in the earlier uh, books of the Bible in order to make that connection, in order to say that these are all in one long line of worship of this God. Uh, these are people who anticipate Jesus, uh, who anticipate the sacrifice that Jesus will make for us. You've also talked a lot about interpretation of dreams, and I think... Uh, Neo can be that interpreter of dreams for us, those plugged into the matrix or those uh, chained to the wall. 
And literally, we have the, a character named Morpheus, yeah. whose name is a Greek deity of dreams. And talks about the Matrix as the dream world as opposed to the real world. Absolutely. So that so dreams, you know, featuring so heavily in the book of Daniel in the life of Nebuchadnezzar is another connection why I think they chose Nebuchadnezzar as opposed to anyone else that they could have picked from the Bible who is especially in the Old Testament who's kind of a bad guy. Kind of a villain, yeah. I mean, definitely in the Old Testament, Nebuchadnezzar if it were a if it were turned into a movie, the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar would be the villain. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. So I think that's part of the reason. I think all of the names in general are significant. All of the place names. And I think ultimately the book of Daniel is about defying authority, yes, but it's also about the power of belief. Belief in oneself, belief in one's principles, belief in one's religion. And that this belief is so powerful, it can interpret dreams, it can save lives, it makes you impervious to fire. What does Neo need in order to become the one? He needs to learn the power of belief. It is the flaw of Neo that he does not believe. He doesn't believe in anything. And in many ways, that is a critique of American culture as one of hyper-rationality devoid of belief itself. And it isn't until Neo actually uncovers the power of belief that he ends up resurrecting himself from death and becomes the one and ends the matrix. And I do think there is something to be said. Now, do I believe in the Bible? Absolutely not. I am an, I'm officially an atheist. So there is a tug and pull between the platonic rationality and the power of belief in the Nebuchadnezzar book of Daniel happening as two intellectual pools in this movie and what this movie does is it brings those two things into harmony. And that is how we see Neo ending up becoming the one. The Oracle tells Neo that being the one is a lot like being in love. No one can tell you that you're in love. You just know. And I want to just share a, a short quote from Lily Wachowski at the GLAAD Awards where she refre reflected on how people are going back and watching her and Lana's work with the lens of their transness today and how important that lens really is. And Lily Wachowski said, quote, the ideas of identity and transformation are components of our work. The bedrock that all ideas rest upon is love, end quote. Well, until next time, everyone, be kind. And know thyself. <laughs>